Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley, and with me always is my partner in crime, Ricky. Now, we have a few patrons that we would love to shout out. This week, we have Lisa, Kylie, Ernesto, Brittany, Anita, and Connor. Thank you all so much for supporting this show. And enjoy the ad-free and bonus episodes on Apple Plus and Patreon. Now, before we jump in, we really want to warn you that the details of this case may be triggering to some listeners, and it includes details of suicide. Listener discretion advised. On the morning of May 24, 2019, Jennifer Dulos, a mother of five, had just returned home from dropping off her children at school. She lived in the exclusive and affluent suburb of New Canaan, Connecticut. At 8.05 that morning, her neighbor's surveillance camera captured her image as she pulled her 2017 Chevy Suburban into her driveway. This would be the last time Jennifer Dulos would ever be seen alive again. After dropping off her children, Jennifer had two doctor appointments scheduled that morning in New York City. She had made arrangements with her nanny, Lauren Almeida, to take the children to her mother's apartment in the city where two of her children had dentist appointments later in the day. Lauren knew Jennifer planned to take her Range Rover into the city that day because she felt it would be easier to park. So when she returned back to the house that afternoon, she was surprised to see the Range Rover still parked in the garage. There were other strange things that she noticed as well. The back door in the mudroom wasn't locked, which was highly out of character for Jennifer. Security was paramount to Jennifer. Next, she noticed that Jennifer's purse was left on the counter. There was also an uneaten granola bar next to Jennifer's cup of morning tea. Lauren assumed Jennifer either didn't have time for it or forgot to take it with her. As Lauren washed the mug, she noticed the paper towel holder was empty and needed to be replaced. So she went to the pantry to get a new roll and noticed that they were all missing. Lauren had just fully restocked the paper towel shelf the night before with 10 new rolls, so it was impossible for them to have all been used. Lauren was getting extremely nervous, but she continued to tell herself that nothing was wrong and she was just being paranoid. There was probably a good explanation for the missing 10 rolls of paper towels, and it was probably the cause for a frazzled Jennifer to leave without her purse and in the wrong car. As her custom, Lauren texted Jennifer to let her know that the kids were eating lunch. She was surprised not to get a return reply. Jennifer was usually quick with communication, and everything felt wrong about this. Lauren had worked for Jennifer since 2012 and knew her to be a very involved and hands-on mother. She was also aware of Jennifer and her estranged husband's contentious divorce and had to bore witness to several disturbing interactions between the two of them. In the recent past, Lauren had observed Jennifer's husband, Fotis Dulos, attempt to run Jennifer over with his car. Another time, Fotis chased Jennifer through the house, threatening to kill her if she tried to leave him or take their children. As a result of those incidents, she began to get an uneasy feeling. 
At 1.10 p.m., Lauren sent another text to Jennifer to let her know that she and the children would be arriving at her mother's apartment in the city by 2.30 p.m. That text also went unanswered. Once Lauren and the children arrived at Gloria Farber's New York apartment, they began making phone calls and learned that Jennifer had missed both of her medical appointments that day. Their collective unease was mounting. At 4.40 p.m., a call to Jennifer went straight to voicemail. Lauren's stomach sank, and she had an overwhelming feeling that something terrible must have happened to Jennifer. During the seven years she had worked for Jennifer, she had never had an issue getting a hold of her. When Lauren discovered Jennifer had also missed the children's 440 orthodontist appointment, her first thought was that Jennifer's estranged husband had done something terrible to her. Lauren headed back to Gloria's apartment, and Jennifer's close friend, Laurel Watts, had arrived. Laurel Watts believed Jennifer was in grave danger, and Fotis was likely responsible. That is when the decision was made to call the New Canaan Police Department and report Jennifer missing. Laurel told the investigators that this was completely unlike Jennifer. They also informed the police that Jennifer was going through a contentious divorce and custody battle with her estranged husband. He had recently purchased a gun and had threatened to kill Jennifer rather than let her win in court. Lauren went back to Jennifer's house in New Canaan to meet the police. From a visual inspection, investigators immediately noticed signs of violence. They found high-velocity blood spatter on the side of Jennifer's Range Rover, as well as signs of a cleanup. Lauren's mind went directly to the 10 missing rolls of paper towels. Upon closer inspection, law enforcement noticed several areas which had been missed and still had blood patterns usually found from injuries involving blunt force trauma. They knew immediately Jennifer had been attacked in her garage and likely she was gravely or fatally wounded. At the direction of law enforcement, Lauren had texted Fotis, letting him know that Jennifer was missing. He called Lauren back at 8.41 p.m. He never asked if Jennifer had been found or if she was still missing. Instead, he wanted to know if his children were still in New York at Gloria's apartment. When Lauren confirmed they were, he let her know that he had an appointment the next day for his court-ordered supervised visit with his children. He told Lauren he expected the visit to go forward as scheduled. In Fotis's usual controlling fashion, he instructed Lauren to set her alarm early enough so that she wasn't late for the visit. Then he oddly remarked, the children were really going to need him now. The next morning, Fotis, an early riser, texted Lauren at 5.39 a.m., reminding her that he had a scheduled visitation that day and expected her to be on time with the children. He continued texting her that morning, wanting to confirm the children were still with Gloria Farber. At noon, Fotis arrived at Gloria's New York apartment unannounced. The doorman had already been instructed that Fotis was not allowed in the building due to an ongoing restraining order and family dispute. The New York Police Department were called and Fotis claimed his children had been abducted and demanded the police force their return to his possession. At this time, technically, Jennifer hadn't been missing for 24 hours. Nonetheless, Fotis seemed convinced that she wasn't coming back and assumed her disappearance meant the children's custody was now reverted back to him. 
The New York Police Department confirmed that Jennifer had a restraining order against Fotis, as well as a court order which prevented him from having unsupervised visitation with his children. At this news, Fotis became enraged. He did not like anyone else having power and control over him, especially not when it came to his children. As far as he was concerned, none of those things mattered anymore because Jennifer was gone. Police wondered, what did Fotis know that her friends, family, and authorities didn't know? Why was he so certain she wasn't coming back and their restraining order was no longer applied? Now, ultimately, he was turned away by law enforcement, who told him it was a civil matter and all orders were still in full force and effect. He continued texting Lauren and demanding that she give him updates on his children every three hours. Again, never asking about Jennifer or if she had been found. At the direction of Gloria's legal counsel, eventually, Lauren stopped responding to Fotis. As the children's grandmother and Jennifer's mother, Gloria Farber filed an emergency intervener action in the ongoing custody case between Jennifer and Fotis. Gloria was granted temporary custody and all visitation with Fotis was immediately suspended. Gloria also hired security for herself and the children. She knew Fotis wouldn't take the court orders well, nor did he respect the law. He never had in the past and she didn't expect anything different going forward, especially not when he lost in court. And he lost many times. There were over 500 pleadings filed in the ongoing custody case. When Fotis lost, which was often, he would respond by making constant requests for reconsideration or filed fruitless motions to re-argue the same issues. There were numerous motions for contempt, motions for non-compliance, and regular requests to modify the custody orders. However, before we can discuss their divorce and custody battle, we have to discuss their marriage. Fotis Doulos was born in Turkey and at the age of seven moved to Athens, Greece. He came from modest means and was an internationally ranked competitive water skiing champion. Fotis came to the United States in 1986 to attend Brown University in Rhode Island, where he met Jennifer Farber during her freshman year. They remained friends but never dated while in college. Fotis went on to obtain his MBA and the two eventually lost touch with each other. In contrast to Fotis, Jennifer lived an extremely privileged life with very wealthy parents. Jennifer's maternal aunt was the famous 80s and 90s fashion designer, Liz Claiborne. Growing up, Jennifer wanted for nothing in life, yet still had a profound kindness and likability. After graduating from Brown University, she attended the prestigious NYU Tisch School of Arts writing program. Jennifer was a playwright, family blogger, and it even tried her hand as a novelist. As an introvert, writing was her passion, and it centered her racing thoughts and quieted her mind. In 2004, Jennifer was living in Colorado when she ran into the still-married Fotis at the airport. Their chemistry was stronger than ever, and one month after his divorce, Jennifer and Fotis got married. They both knew exactly what they wanted in life and were moving fast towards those goals. They had five children within five years and named them all after Greek Orthodox saints. For privacy reasons, we won't be naming them. Together, they had two sets of twins and one daughter. 
Jennifer took to motherhood right away and embraced it as her true calling in life. Fotis, with the help of Jennifer's parents, started the Four Group and became a luxury home builder in Connecticut. Fotis used Jennifer's family as a continuing and never-ending line of personal credit. Throughout their marriage, he felt entitled to their assets as if they were his own. He often had several properties being built at one time and used her family to either fund his business or guarantee construction loans. Jennifer's parents also lent the couple $2.5 million, acting as the guarantor on the mortgage for the family's 15,000-square-foot estate in Farmington, Connecticut. Fotis had a separate 2,500-foot office space he built over the garage, which he used for his company's headquarters, all of this being quite lavish. Fotis was always a high-energy athlete who was extremely active and expected the same competitive level of interest in sports from his children. At just nine years old, his firstborn set of twin boys were both internationally ranked water skiers in their age group. Fotis never saw sports as recreational. Everything had to be at an elite level. To nurture his son's water skiing careers, he brought over a coach from Greece to train them at a local pond used by local water ski clubs. He became a well-known figure amongst the club members. As the years went by, the marriage began to exhibit cracks in their foundation. Jennifer became increasingly uncomfortable with the way Fotis treated the children. She felt that he was too hard on them and expected too much from them. Likewise, the children were unhappy with the pressure they were under to constantly perform. They couldn't live up to their father's expectations for them, and they begged Jennifer to intervene. She handled it by signing them up for conflicting activities, thus limiting their time with their father. This also enraged Fotis. He was quick to anger and had a notoriously short fuse. He complained Jennifer signed the children up for too many activities and without his permission. Fotis also traveled quite a bit, living an international life that included water ski competitions back in Athens and skiing in Aspen. It was during one of these many trips where he met a woman he would date throughout his marriage to Jennifer. This time, he was dating a Venezuelan girl named Michelle Tracones. She had much more in common with Fotis than Jennifer. She also was a competitive water skier, and Fotis felt he had finally met the right woman for him. The fact he was married was of little consequence. He traveled at least 10 days a month with his mistress, and Jennifer enjoyed the conflict-free home while he was away. Her loneliness was of little concern to herself. Her focus was always on her five children and what was best for them. In January of 2017, Jennifer's beloved father died. With his death came the end to the never-ending funds used by Fotis. Two months later after his death, Jennifer learned about the existence of Michelle Tracones and discovered that she was her husband's current mistress. Jennifer was used to Fotis cheating on her, but this time she sensed there was something about Michelle that was different from his past affairs. Or maybe it was something about Jennifer that was different. In March of 2017, when she found out about the affair, she demanded it to stop. However, no one demands Fotis. Fotis made the rules, and the rules were to be followed. Instead of apologizing and promising to end the affair, Fotis had another solution. He told Jennifer he was no longer in love with her, but he expected their marriage was for life. 
This solution was for his girlfriend and her young daughter to move into the family home. He decided it was large enough for them all to coexist. According to pleadings in the divorce case, Jennifer alleged that every other weekend and part of the summer, she would be allowed to take the children to her mother's house. Fotis told her if she tried to leave, he would kidnap the children and raise them in Greece. Other threats included her death. One day, her children let her know that their father had purchased a gun. This is when Jennifer knew she had to leave. As you can imagine, this had to have been a very scary situation. With the threats and anger brewing, she was concerned for her and her children's safety, so she planned to escape carefully. According to experts, in coercive control, the most dangerous time in a relationship is when the victim tries to leave the abuser. For those reasons, Jennifer did some pre-planning. She enrolled the children in school 75 minutes away in New Canaan, where Fotis had talked about eventually moving. Then, Jennifer rented a house five minutes from their new school. She left in June of 2019, only taking essentials, her children, and their clothing. As predicted, Fotis didn't take it well. He called 911 and reported that his wife and children were missing. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm worried about my uh, wife and kids because they uh, they left to go to New York and I haven't uh, been able to get in touch with them. Okay, where they were going to New York. What's the license plate on the car? Excuse me. What's the license plate on the car? Uh, well, I have to get them for you. Okay, what's, what's the, who's the car registered to? It's uh, registered to my wife's name, Jennifer Dulos. Spell the last name for me. Uh, Dulos, D-U-L-O-S. Jennifer, G-A-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. Yes. Your hair date of birth? Uh, it's uh, September 27, 1968. And then um, they were driving with uh, a baby team. Uh, can you help as well? Okay, what kind of, hold on, hold on. What kind of car were they driving? It was a Range Rover. Is it a Range Rover? Yep. Hold on, let's see. Uh, black, 2016 black Land Rover Range Rover? Yep. yep. Okay, when were they supposed to be there? Uh, they were supposed to be there. Lauren? Laura? Do you know her last name? 
A-L-M-E-I-D-A. Okay, and her cell phone number? Uh, let me give it to you one second. And who else is with them? Uh, that's it. Okay, no kids. And you, you said there were kids with them or not? Uh, they're the, my first kids, yes. How many kids? Two? Uh, five. Five kids? Yep. Okay. Let me give you her number. Mm-hmm. 490. P.M.? Excuse me? P.M.? P.M., yes. Okay. And they're supposed to be in New York tonight? Yeah, they're supposed to be in New York, but nobody's picking up. And I'm really worried because I'm just saying I can't hear you. You're all, sir? Sir, I can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Let me take you off speaker for Yes, please um, do. So, um, no, I did that because I wanted to see the number, but... Mm -hmm. um, I've been texting, and I see that the texts are being delivered, mm -hmm. but nobody's responding to me. Okay. Um, so they're supposed to, do you have, okay, so I'll send an officer to speak with you, um, but do you have, like, a, the, the Find Your iPhone app or anything like that? Uh, what's that? Okay. Do you have iPhones? Yes, I do. Okay. All right. Um, what's your name? It's uh, Fotis, F-O-T-I-S. Okay. Uh, last name is Dulos, D-U-L-O-S. Okay, I'll send an officer over to speak with you, okay? You're at 4 Jefferson Crossing? Yes. Okay. Uh, what time do you think he'll be here? Uh, he should be there shortly. He's uh, okay. he's not too far, okay? Okay, The very next day, at that 911 call, Fotis was served with divorce papers. With that filing, the custody battle began. They both asked for full custody, claiming the other was unfit. Fotis claimed Jennifer was depressed and under the care of a psychiatrist and barely had a relationship with her children. He described himself as the primary caretaker. Jennifer claimed he was verbally and emotionally abusive, and both her and her children were afraid of him. She told the court she was scared for her life. She told the court that Fotis didn't like to lose and had vivid revenge fantasies for anyone who would dare cross him. She also told the court that Fotis, quote, expects to exhibit complete control over me and the children, end quote. She told the court in a filing for custody that she is, quote, afraid of my husband. He is dangerous and ruthless when he believes that he has been wronged. During the course of our marriage, he told me about sickening revenge fantasies and plans to cause physical harm to others who have wronged him, end quote. And in response, he told the court she threatened to have the mafia break his legs. The complaints about each other were never ending. In court filings, Jennifer stated his behavior was irrational and unsafe, and he bullied her and threatened her with his controlling behavior throughout their marriage. She stated one minute he told her the marriage was over, and the next he told her he would never allow her to divorce him. 
Jennifer also told the court she was worried that he would use his gun to harm her and her children. They both accused each other of making disparaging remarks about the other parent in front of the children, otherwise known as parental alienation, which is a form of emotional abuse one parent uses to turn the children against the other parent. Eventually, the court appointed a guardian ad litem for the children to protect their interest. Both Jennifer and Fotis were ordered to undergo full psychiatric testing to make sure both were fit to care for their children. Those documents were sealed by the court as part of the custody filings because it involved minors. However, as a result of Fotis' inability to comply with court orders, the judge ordered that all visitation between Fotis and the children were to be supervised with a court-paid third-party monitor. This was because the court discovered that Fotis was pressuring the children to lie during their interviews and tell the court they wanted to live with him. He also pressured them to lie to their mother when he broke the visitation rules. The judge determined in writing via court order that Fotis had lost all credibility to tell the truth whether under oath or not. In addition to Fotis's many losses in court, he was undergoing significant financial strain as well. Once the money stopped flowing in from Jennifer's father, Hillard Farber, Fotos retaliated by defaulting on his mortgage payments. And since it was personally guaranteed by the Farbers, Gloria Farber had to begin making payments. She sued Fotis and began foreclosing proceedings on the family home in Farmington. Not only had Fotis lost control of his wife and children, he no longer had the personal access to the unlimited funding from Jennifer's wealthy parents. This meant he could no longer take private jet planes to Aspen and Greece at moment's notice. Fotis told his girlfriend he never thought Jennifer would be so cruel and do this to him. Michelle Traconis said that they fought a lot over Jennifer, and the divorce and the custody battle was a source of continual acrimony between the two of them. A man used to winning was suddenly losing. He told the court, quote, Your Honor, I am sorry, but why do I always get the raw end of the stick? I really wanted to see my children. I have spent 2% of the time with them. I'm not Charles Manson, end quote. Fotis was paying three divorce attorneys, and the guardian ad litem in the case had already been paid $175,000. The psychiatrist who prepared the custody report was paid $40,000, and all of these costs were split with Jennifer. Fotis also had to pay the court-ordered supervisor $150 per hour for all of his monitored visits. At one point, the judge ordered Fotis to take family systems therapy until he, quote, understood the ramifications of the improper request that he had made of the children to lie on his behalf, end quote. On May 22, 2019, two days before Jennifer's disappearance, Fotis had a scheduled visit with the children. He was supposed to arrive at 4.30 p.m., but came a half hour early. Jennifer was very upset and quickly asked Lauren to help her lock all of the doors. She had a restraining order against Fotis and was panicked because the court supervisor had not arrived yet. Once the monitor arrived, they all left for an activity that Fotis had planned. They arrived back within an hour. Fotis had miscalculated their outing, and the place he planned a picnic for the children was closed. So he asked Jennifer if he could have a picnic in her backyard. She agreed with strict instructions that he could not enter her home. 
In retrospect, the authorities believed this was premeditated and calculated. Fotis was already planning to kill his wife and wanted to account for any forensic evidence he might have left behind as transfer evidence through his children. This is exactly what Fotis would allege a few months later when it was discovered that he had left some of his DNA on the doorknob of the mudroom. Now, the day after Jennifer went missing, the new Canaan police asked Fotis to come down to the police station and give a full statement. And when he arrived, his lawyer was outside on a phone call. They asked Fotis if he had his phone with him, and he dramatically patted down his pockets as if he couldn't find it. Just then, his lawyer walked in, handed Fotis his phone, and announced that they would not be cooperating, nor would they be making a statement. The detective asked Fotis if he could look at his phone, and Fotis handed it over. He asked for the code, which Fotis gave him. It was four zeros. The officer placed the phone on airplane mode so it couldn't be remotely erased from the cloud. Then he told Fotis that he was impounding his phone to preserve evidence of a crime. Fotis's lawyer told them they didn't have permission to keep the phone and demanded it be returned. They stated they believed it was used in the commission of a crime and promised that they wouldn't forensically examine the phone until they had the proper warrant. That phone would eventually unravel a diabolical plan to get away with murder. The next day, the police obtained their warrant and discovered that on the day of the murder at 7.30 p.m., Fotis traveled up and down Albany Avenue in Hartford, Connecticut. He made over 30 stops. It took a few days for police to obtain CCTV footage in the area, and once they did, they were able to capture Fotis's Ford Raptor as it stopped at various trash bins, drainage ditches, and commercial trash receptacles. In one video, they were able to see Michelle Traconis exit the vehicle next to a drainage ditch. Later, she would say that she was wiping gum off her hand on the curb. She would later allege that she had no idea what Fotis had been dumping. Police were unable to find all the bags because it had been almost a week since the murder. However, the bags they did find were filled with evidence of a bloody murder and a hasty cleanup. In one bag, they found Jennifer's shirt and bra soaked in her own blood. They also found a sponge with Jennifer's blood and Fotis's DNA. They found license plates that Fotis had altered and was believed he used during the murder to avoid being captured on CCTV footage. Some of the bags had a combination of DNA from Jennifer and Fotis commingled. One of the largest bags contained the DNA from Michelle Traconis. And as a result of this evidence, both Fotis Dulos and Michelle Traconis were arrested on charges of tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution in connection with Jennifer's disappearance. Later, the two, along with Fotis's attorney, Kent Mawinney, faced additional charges related to Jennifer's murder. Kent Mawinney agreed to a plea deal with her and in turn received a five-year suspected sentence and three years probation for violating a protective order against his ex-wife. However, after tampering with his ankle monitor, he was ordered back to jail to serve his sentence and his bail was increased to $1.5 million. It was thought that Fotis was to act as Kent's alibi while he allegedly planned to murder his wife, and Kent acted as Fotis's useless alibi for the periods when Jennifer was missing. Now, with CCTV footage, that alibi was clearly a lie. Once the footage shown Fotis dumping the evidence relating to Jennifer's murder, 
As of the airing of this episode, neither Kent nor Michelle have gone on trial for their part in Jennifer's murder. They are each being charged with conspiracy to commit murder and other evidence tampering charges. And as for Fotis, well, he took the coward's way out. He completed suicide with meticulous precision on January 28, 2020, on a day he was due in court and likely to have his bail revoked. He stuffed the openings in his garage door with styrofoam and used duct tape to fasten a vacuum hose to the tailpipe of his SUV. Then he placed three phone calls, one to his attorney, one to his bail bondsman, and one to his new girlfriend. He left behind him a note where he insisted that despite the overwhelming amount of evidence against him, that he was completely innocent. And it read in part, quote, All, if you are reading this, I am no more. I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with. Enough is enough. If it takes my head to end this, so be it. I want it to be known that Michelle Traconis had nothing to do with Jennifer's disappearance, and neither did Kent Mawinney. I asked the state to let them free of any such accusations. I also asked the state to stop harassing my friends, Andreal and Ann Curry. They are honorable people. Please let my children know that I love them. I would do anything to be with them, but unfortunately, we all have our limits. The state will not rest until I rot in jail. My attorney can explain what happened with the bags on Albany Avenue. Everything else is a story fabricated by the law enforcement. I want to thank all my family and friends that stood by me during this difficult time. Above all, Anna Curry, I am sorry for letting you down and not continuing the fight. Fotis, end quote. His reference to his attorney explaining the video of him and Michelle disposing of evidence on Albany Avenue was truly unbelievable. Had he had gone to trial, he was likely going to allege that Jennifer was alive and well and a real-life gone girl, that she had been stockpiling her blood for months to use in an attempt to frame him for her murder. He was going to allege that he came back to his truck after lunch and the back of his Ford Raptor was filled with bags, filled with bloody evidence of a crime. To this day, Jennifer's body has never been found. Photos took the location of her body with him to his grave. In May of 2021, a domestic violence bill called Jennifer's Law received near unanimous support in the Connecticut State Senate. The proposed law was named after Jennifer Dulos, and the bill sought to expand the definition of domestic violence to include coercive control. On June 28, 2021, Governor Ned Lamont signed Jennifer's bill into law. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is why we have covered a variety of cases this month which fall under the spectrum of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, emotional abuse, and coercive control. We hope if you recognize some of these patterns, red flags, or themes in your life or someone close to you, that you reach out for help. If you or a loved one is suffering from domestic violence, there are resources available to help someone safely make a plan to escape. There is help, even if you feel like there is no one who can help you. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached 24-7 at 800-799-7233 or by text at 88788. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will be with you next week.
Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.